Hi, this is Graphic Policy Radio. It has been a bad couple of weeks for trans people in America. I'm going to address it for about two minutes before we start our episode, because there are going to be some things that you can do about it. If you are trans or already living and breathing the struggle for trans equality and don't need a reminder, please feel free to skip the next two minutes of audio. We will be talking about some glorious queer art very shortly. But if you aren't trans and don't know what the hell I'm talking about, state governments around the country are launching unprecedented attacks on trans people, especially trans kids. They are making trans healthcare illegal for them and taking trans kids away from loving parents who support them. The anti-trans attacks aren't only happening in Republican-controlled states. Right here in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams is appointing gleeful bigots to chair major city agencies. In Maryland, there was a bill that would get trans people the health care they need, and it failed under a Democratic legislature because it was, quote-unquote, an election year. We all have work to do where we live, which is why I am urging you to do a search for anti-trans legislation in your state and contact your local electeds. A good place to start is transequality.org. That's T-R-A-N-S, equality.org, which is a national hub. They do great work, and you can donate to them and also see what's happening in your state. Um, If you're thinking specifically about helping folks in Texas, I know that the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico is helping trans family refugees from Texas relocate there and does good work. Look into who's running for school board where you live and ask them to support trans kids. You can always contact me on Twitter if you're looking for more meaningful ways to help. E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn is my handle. My only response in times like this is that we need to be in community with each other and we need to organize. And we also need to share moments of joy with each other and build our community. And with that, here's our episode about Our Flag Means Death. Hello and welcome to Graphic Policy Radio, where comics and politics meet. This is a pop culture podcast sailing on the trade winds to the confluence of popular culture and movements for social change. So there I was. I was steering my ship, the comic book critic. It sails flapping in the wind, hauling out a great cargo of conversations with comics artists and writers, when suddenly there was a cannon shot across my starboard bow. Its source was a great brigantine flying a black flag with an insignia that appeared to be a pirate dude toasting a skeleton. Uh, with a like a, a wine cooler, maybe. It was a sign of the dread pirate T. Fogner attempting to board with a simple message. Hey, if you haven't taped an Our Flag Means Death podcast episode yet, this is me planting my flag and registering my interest in talking about queer pirates. And then I knew it was time to shift my mission and drop what I was doing immediately and begin uh, binge-watching a television show That was not just about pirates, but about queer pirates. Yes, I had to watch it right away. So I want to thank T because I had, I'd had Our Flag Means Death on the short list, but it was definitely T's pitch that made this become a, a more rapid priority for viewing pleasure of mine. I, I crammed as much of the show in. I knew I wanted to cover it on the podcast as soon as possible. And I was able to thankfully impress a fellow sailor to be my first mate. Caden Mock, 
Caden Mack has spent the last decade organizing people for racial justice, leveraging many aspects of technology and pop culture. Formerly of 19 Million Rising, an Asian American Pacific Islander civic organizing group that I happen to love. Welcome back to the show, Caden. Thanks. Thanks so much. I am thrilled to be your first mate. Hooray. T might have gotten me to watch the show, but as soon as I was clear that I would definitely be doing an episode on it, I messaged you saying, you're, you're watching this, right? Because <laughs> I knew you'd have <laughs> to say. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Dread Pirate T. Fogner, T. is the editorial director for comics at King Features Syndicate, co-chair of programming for FlameCon, the world's largest LGBTQ plus comics convention. She competed in her first sailboat race at seven and by 12 was convinced that she was the reincarnation of a famous pirate. She co-modded a 200-person pirate RPG for three years and has a 13-hour pirate core playlist on Spotify that you could follow. Welcome back, Pirate T. <laughs> Thank you, Alana. I am so, so happy that you listened to my DM on Twitter and decided to do this. Thank you for watching the show. Oh, I love it. This show has brought me so much joy. I mean, guys, you you heard me, you know, gushing about Peacemaker. This is the other show that I've had that kind of response to that I've for, for, for me in the past. I don't even know how long. For folks who haven't watched the show yet, Taika Waititi is a genius and is the executive producer. The showrunner is someone whose work I actually was not familiar with prior to this. David Jenkins. David Jenkins, who's done a really interesting and exciting time engaging with fans. He said he set out to write this absurdist historical fiction rom-com pirate swashbucklers show. And uh, as, as he was releasing it, he saw the fan response, which is full of people talking about, you know, the queer content of the story, but not believing that it would actually result in there being queer relationships canonically on the show between major characters. And he by watching people's response to it, he realized, oh shit, like people are super traumatized from watching shows for years in which they would see hints and reflections of their identities in shows and then things would be left to subtext. He was always going to make a show where these subtext was text because that's the nature of any good story about piracy, frankly. He's he's so moved and feels our pain, basically, <laughs> for all we've had to go through to get to this, or in this case, meaning queer fans, to get to this point where he's like, oh, of course I was going to always have that happen. I'm not a fucking psycho. This is the, I'm telling a romantic comedy. And the only reason people would doubt that that would happen is because of the dominance of heteronormative stories and homophobia and popular culture. The fact that he's voiced this sympathy for, for, for queer viewers is, is kind of remarkable to me. And that kind of caring, uh, about queer characters and queer people in real life, including the many queer people who are working on the show as writers and actors, um, really shines through this television show. You know, I actually, I pitched this show to a friend recently as um, historical fiction about pirates if the executive producers were all Tumblr users. Um, <laughs> and like, God bless it. You know, there's something about like, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't know this thing about David Jenkins, the showrunner. And it, I think it says a lot that he's keyed into fan culture in that way because it feels like that. Like, I actually mm -hmm. don't feel like we get this show without the kind of fan culture that has been on the internet since 
since I've been on the internet, basically, you know, where people are shipping people and raising up the subtext into text for themselves because nobody yeah. else is going to do it for them. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's so fascinating to me because to him, he was like, well, of course we're going to do this queer love story. This is pirates. Pirate history is queer. And, and then we're all just so traumatized that we can't believe what's actually finally happening. <laughs> I know that Black Sails, you know, was another, was a pirate drama that a lot of folks love that had queer characters in it as well. But, um, you know, this is definitely a show that uses history in creative ways, but is also very much an absurdist comedy. Taika Waititi being the producer is shows through. And of course, his performance in it is absolutely majestic. So for anyone who hasn't watched the show yet, or perhaps maybe you just saw the trailer that I felt like the trailer was so for basic bitches. And this show is not that. I had so many, I had a couple of friends just say to me, oh, I saw the trailer and I'm like, ignore the trailer. The trailer doesn't do it justice. So, I mean, I, someone laughed because someone knows what I, I one yeah. of you guys just laughed. Yeah. Now, now is the time to get on board for the show, to hoist your sails and board the ship. Um, because this has been, this is going to be a really rich conversation where we will be talking about history in queer identity and this amazing diverse cast that we get. The ensemble on this show is just tremendous and I hope they can get a big collective Emmy for best ensemble or something because I have been blown out of the water by a combination of newcomers and also people and famous names and faces we have seen before, you know. I mean, I feel like the thesis here is queer pirates. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, what more needs to be said, frankly? I mean, I can tell you that my non-queer husband really enjoys the show as well. Um, and actually, it was adorable that because he doesn't like live on Twitter, God bless him for his sanity and mine. He when there was a, there were two characters who are, are building up a relationship between them. Well, there's a lot of characters there, but two in particular through the beginning of the show, and they kiss. And my husband was like, "Oh, they they did that!" Like he just he just. He's like a straight viewer who like assumed that they were just going to fucking shit check it out. I'm like, yes, I told you. Like, I, I don't have the tolerance to be here if they wouldn't. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Which is not to say that this is a show that shies away from like dealing with violence and trauma and terrible things that happen and has an interesting way of approaching the fucked up real life of history as well. One thing I will say for those who haven't viewed it yet, I've consistently found that folks, myself included, didn't love the pilot. So I would say give yourself to episode three to make a decision. And the good news is the episodes are only 30 minutes. So I'm not actually asking you to spend too much time. But I find the pilot to be not as great as the rest of the show. And of course, with so many shows that are driven by character development, the story just gets richer the more engaged you are with the characters on the screen. So, of course, it gets better throughout the series. And with that, uh, from here on out, there are to be spoilers, mateys, as we are going off the uncharted corners of the map. Okay, spoiler time. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, I should also say we had a ton of listener questions. And if you're one of the folks who sent one in, thank you. We will be talking about as many of those as we can. Um, what did you guys think about the way the this show sort of situated the main story inside like real real world pirate history? I'll let you start with that, T. Yeah, so I actually, for me, watching the pilot was a revelation because nobody ever includes Steed Bonnet. And so mm. 
when I and I knew that like I knew Blackbeard was in this. I don't know if I knew Steed Bonnet was in it when I started watching it. And I'm just sitting there like, oh, my God, it's Steed Bonnet. And based on any contemporary um, records of what he was like as a person, he's spot on. Um, so, I mean, like the thing about Steed Bonnet is that he basically he was this rich dude who decided he really wanted to be a pirate. The show takes liberties with how he did that, but he literally just went and bought a ship. That's not something pirates did. Pirates stole a ship and then used that ship to steal a bigger ship until they got a ship that they decided was big enough. And then they probably crashed that ship and had to start over again. But (laughs) he literally just bought himself a pirate ship and the bit in the first episode where he talks about how he pays his crew a salary, also true. Steed Bonnet was like the only pirate captain to pay his crew a salary. I love it. So, you know, so for me, getting in there, what's really interesting to me about the show is that I started out feeling very gratified that the people making this show knew what they were doing. They understood who these people were. And that I would say all of the all of the liberties that they take with the time period and things that happen during the time period are being made. They're being taken for really good reasons, with one exception, um, because I think that they did not get Jack Rackham right at all. Um, That's Calico uh, Jack. Calico Jack. um, Mm -hmm. My husband has a theory on this. Um, which is that he's supposed to be Charles Vane. And they realized mid-show that nobody knew who Charles Vane was, so they changed it to Calico Calico Jack. But, um, yeah, Jack Rackham is nothing like Jack Rackham was in real life. But other than that, all of the decisions are really, really smartly made. And um, and super cool show. So much of this show is like a workplace comedy And I just love the thesis of what if work wasn't abuse? Now, IRL, that's complicated by the whole, like, is this a found family show? Is this a workplace comedy? And, you know, as any as any person like looking at exploitative labor conditions will tell you, situations that ask you to conflate your job with your family are probably going to lead to some bad exploitive situations for your life. But in terms of the shows, the way it situates it, Steed is their employer and he's going to be like the boss that's not the tyrant. He's going to show you how to have a less abusive workplace. In the first episode, when they all vote to determine if they're going to mutiny or not, Pirate Life IRL was, there was a lot of voting um, I'm like not saying that this was a democracy, but there's there's interesting pieces of that system that show up here. Um, and I I love the role that voting plays in the show because like doing things by fighting, but also by consensus is an interesting way to talk about work and and also talk about pirates. You know? I thought the like slippage between workplace comedy is kind of where we start and family comedy is where we end up. And I thought that slippage was interesting because mm. I think it actually says something about the char- the fictional character of Steve in the show going from this sort of like upper middle class Patrickan sort of nuclear family approach to the world and his development into somebody who is in touch with his deeper desires and his queer identity 
there's there's also something there for me in terms of the appeal of pirates to begin with as trying to escape from the sort of settler colonial capitalist proto-capitalist system of the t- imperial system of the time that's of course somebody who comes from steed's background is going to assume that he's going to run this ship like a workplace granted it's a kind of like gentler workplace but then learns that the pirating life is a little deeper and more complicated than that. That's a really yeah. great observation. And I think one of the things, you know, one of the things that's interesting about what you just said, Caden, is that in real life, Steed Bonnet owned slaves. Uh, he was a wealthy landowner from Barbados. I would have figured because he was from Barbados. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Well, I mean, if he weren't a wealthy landowner, maybe not. But he was a wealthy landowner from Barbados. I think it's really important to talk about Steed Bonnet on the show as being a different person than the historical Steed Bonnet. It kind of has, it has a lot of the same sort of reconciliation issues that Hamilton does, where Mm -hmm. you're casting all of these characters as heroes who maybe historically certainly sometimes did heroic things, but also were really part of systemic injustice. Mm -hmm. I worry that at at times it seems like people feel like you either have to completely just have everything be historically accurate and also condemn everything everybody does at the same time, or like it's wrong to interpret historical stories into historical fiction. I think this show does a great job of of fictionalizing lives based on both bigger truths, but also sort of more buried histories about them. Yeah, well, I think that the comedy format actually does a lot for that, right? That mm. it's like, I think there there are liberties that we allow in comedy that we do not allow in like straight drama programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and... That's something that, in addition to having moments of uproariously funny, just silly situations that work really well, it also kind of sort of like cognitive space to make room for that. And the places where anachronisms show up, I think, point to the fact that this is a show for contemporary people that is like set in the past, but using the past as a jumping off point to then also talk about like human condition and what's going on with human beings in the present also continual dilemmas for human beings about belonging and how do we live good lives and what does it mean to love each other i think that the sort of genius of the show to me is using comedy to create space for that um in Mm. a way that i think like a dramatic show a dramatic historical fiction show i'm more ready to pick apart being like oh well this guy in real life was maybe not such a cool guy but because it is this like romantic comedy, I'm like, yes, I'm on board with this. I'm into this character for who he is in this show. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great point. I will I will actually say that um, one of our listener questions was asking us what our favorite anachronism or inaccuracy was. For me, the conversation in episode two around the gentrification of Pirate's Cove, it's the sort of thing where it's like this same phenomenon happened uh, throughout all of history, but like would not have been called gentrification at that time. And I loved 
that was my favorite. It's like, it's, it's not quite an anachronism because that is the kind of thing that does happen, but calling it gentrification is an anachronism. And that brought me great pleasure. And the crew just debating Lay of Pirates Cove. It was, had already like lost its weirdness and been sold out and it was cooler before. And so, it was so a, relatable you know. as a resident of the Bay Area. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to, just to add some historical color here, the era that the show is taking place in, that was actually a real issue. Um, and partic- it was actually particularly a real issue in New Providence, um, which is where Spanish Jackie's Bar is, because um, that's about the time that the British sent a new governor, Woods Rogers, who was really, really hype on killing all the pirates. And, um, and so this was really a thing that was happening in the Caribbean at the time um, and that there was a lot of concern about. So because among, you know, when even though there is all these, you know, all these sorts of much bigger, complicated issues around piracy, um, the pirates were on fairly good terms with a lot of the colonies of people who had been enslaved and then escaped. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and other people who were in the area, um, there was a lot more acceptance of differences. And then the English came in and tried to tamp all of that down. But um, as far as favorite inaccuracies, anachronisms, um, I really, really loved what they did um, with Steed and Mary, actually. So mm-hmm. Steed and Mary... In technically had four kids. The names of the kids that they use in the show are not the names of their real-life children. Um, and in real life, Mary was... I don't, I don't want to say she was, like, okay with the whole he was going to run away and be a pirate thing, but she was aware of it. And before Steed left, he actually um, signed... He, he basically signed over governance... Um, of all of his business to Mary um, so that she could actually control his business and his absence, which is something that's pretty unheard of at the time. Men wow, did not give yeah. their wives control of all of their business and belongings. So, you know, when we see Steve do that at the very, very end when he fakes his death, but um, she was very, very much part of that from the beginning. But I loved what they did with the two of them as characters in that by the end they were you know they they were able to understand each other they were able to accept and acknowledge that their life together was not healthy for either of them but that both of them could have healthy lives outside of that that were the lives that they wanted to live and i just felt like it was um it was a really nice way to do that and um and also you know fake Steed getting hit with a piano was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, just the show's decision to have Mary not be the bad guy is so feminist and important. Yeah. I was full on expecting her to kind of like basically have a heel turn um, as like the jilted wife, but it was amazing that that was not the case. I know. Like it's so easy to have her just be some harpy who's not understanding. Maybe she's homophobic. 
Uh, she just wants to ruin his life. And it's like, no, no, she's a full person who yeah. was also unsatisfied, as you could clearly tell, who has her own interests, which include my other favorite anachronism, which is painting paintings that were definitely oh not painted God. then. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, um, sure. But if she did paint well, those, she was truly a visionary painter right. who painted modernism. But regardless. But that's, like, that's yeah. what I loved about that was that yeah. it was implying that she was a vis visionary painter. And like, I saw that as sort of a commentary on the way that artwork by women and mm. other people of marginalized genders mm. was ignored for centuries. And credit for inventing all of these movements was always given to men and particularly white men and usually at a time that maybe there'd been somebody else doing it for a while first. So I felt like that was great and I really took it as she was supposed to be that brilliant. Um mm, I like it. But I also the one of the one of the sweetest moments in the show is when Steed tells her that he's found somebody and she, you know, she says, what's her name? And he says, Ed, and then he uses male pronouns and she's just like so happy for him. And it's like this moment of like, yeah, I probably had figured that out and I'm just so glad you did too. And it's yeah. really precious. Yeah. Kaden, did you have a favorite inaccurate anachronism? <laughs> This is not necessarily an anachronism so much as it's like one of those things that I just, I appreciated the sort of physical comedy of it, which mm. is how many people get around in rowboats uh, across <laughs> indeterminate distances very quickly. Um, yeah, I'm a they're the sort of devices of this of coming and going. You're like, I don't think you can row that fast by yourself. And also, how far did you go? Yeah. Um, but that allows, How is anybody finding anyone that fast? Yeah. Like, how does this work? But there's something it. about that that I just found so funny. And like the way that people would show up places um, is simultaneously, it's just like it, it allows them to do more funny things with space and time that allowed them to condense the show in a way that, that kept it well paced while yes. also adding a level of absurdity. You know, the being on a rowboat, getting hit by a cannonball, you know, just like really silly stuff. Um, and I had a lot of appreciation for that. I don't know That's why that great. stands out to me. <laughs> no, but it did. And it, I, I, we would laugh about it like with great regularity. H how wonderful is the boat? Just as a beautiful specimen of impractical, there's got to be like a word for it. Something which is just too beautiful and impractical to be real. One of the moments that was so heartbreaking watching the show was at the end of the season, seeing the pirates forced to throw all the books into the water. Yes. When you know that if this was just about practicality, they would have sold those books because that's just yeah. worth a lot of money. But it isn't just about practicality. This is this is about cutting yourself off from someone who you feel hurt by. And, but just seeing that whole library going into the ocean was beautiful shot. Just killed me. But let's talk about let's talk about the boat. Let's talk about that boat. I love the part where it's pretty early on where um, Steed takes Ed into like his secret backup closet mm -hmm. and. First of all, there's all these layers of metaphor going on there, but <laughs> the fact that, like, this guy, he had his own boat built, so he built secret passages into it, and he built all of these little weird, quirky things that you would never find on a real boat. Um, and, you know, and frankly, again, pirates didn't 
build their boats. Pirates stole boats. So you didn't usually have a boat that you could like have a cool secret closet in because you just got what you've got. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's really cool. Um, it's, it's very neat. I totally understand why, you know, I'm mixing up historical with fictional here, but I totally understand why Blackbeard Khan steed bonded out of his ship in real life. It's great. It's beautiful. Also, the unicorn. Think, oh, yes. The unicorn. The unicorn's the very unicorn. good. Oh, at the, at so the prow the, of the ship. The unicorn is um, very possibly a real thing. I don't know if I don't know if the revenge actually had a unicorn on it, but um, a lot of a lot of the um, pirates of the area were um, specifically Jacobites, um, which were people who supported the Scottish Catholic claim to the English throne. Um, and so the unicorn is a, is the Scotland symbol, right? So it makes a lot of sense for him to have a unicorn on the front of his ship, even from a historical perspective, hmm. um, beyond just there's a unicorn and it's beautiful and unicorns are queer. What an amazing confluence of things. Yes. Um, the thing that strikes me about the boat, too, is how s relatively small the crew is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's yeah. like not a lot of people when we get like full shots of the ship. I feel like it's not enough people to sail this boat. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, part I guess part of the point is also to be able to really develop out all the crew characters, which I think is also, you know, Alana, like you said, like the ensemble nature of the show is also really, I think, one of its strong suits. I really hope we get more featured episodes of different characters' origin stories over time. I I love the entire cast. I love all the weirdos. I love all their weird and interesting voices and uniqueness. And obviously we should talk about Jim, who is the best of the bunch. I think we can all agree, obviously. Um, <laughs> this was not something we pre-discussed, so that might not be people's <laughs> opinion. But I'm just going to decide that this is true. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the the actor who plays Jim, uh, Vigo, Vico Ortiz, is amazing. I listened to a really great interview with them on the podcast. What's it called? Like Being LGBTQ or something was the name of the podcast. But follow them on social media if you don't. In the podcast, Vico said that pirate life is queer life. Vico actually does real life sword fighting and knife fighting and is a competitive athlete. Oh, that's who, sweet. Yeah, yeah. They were the, um, on like the Puerto Rican sword fighting team and of course they got into it because of star wars as a kid of course um <laughs> mm -hmm. but so one of the things that like you know um so vico in real life is a drag king and vico is non-binary and their character is non-binary I, I don't know if the part was if the if like when they were making the show they were oh let's have a non-binary pirate or if they were trying to do a it's a woman disguised as a man like shakespeare thing and then they hired vico and then they were like oh let's do non-binary because this actor's non-binary i don't know whatever it is it was a great it was a great like story point and one of the things i love so much is how all of the other members of the crew relate to Jim's gender presentation. In that first episode when they're discussing mutinying, one of the names that's put out as, well, we could all agree this person's badass and maybe they should be our captain because they're all talking about basically how uh, Steed is inadequately masculine to be captain. They're like, well, everyone thinks Jim is like totally the dude, so Jim should be the captain. And the only reason they don't go with that is one, 
like Jim clearly doesn't want to be in charge of anything. And two, they're like, oh, well, Jim can't talk. So never mind. Um, <laughs> so Jim, who's non-binary, is the person who's manning the best, basically, of the crew. And I, I, I love how it's only once that they're able to come out as being a non-binary person um, that they have a voice. Being out literally gives mm-hmm. them the ability to have a voice, whereas they've been claiming to be mute so that their more feminine sounding voice wouldn't be identified. And also just like their shaggy hair is part of their disguise. Like in so many things, they're like, oh, well, long hair. That's how you know this person isn't non-binary. There must be a girl because they have long hair. And it's no, no, like part of part of Jim's costume, like that, that the long hair is part of like their full presentation. And I loved how after they, you know, basically come out to people and there's a yeah, conversation around that. Jim just doesn't suddenly start completely changing how they're presenting themselves. Um, apparently that was an idea that Vico had themselves. Uh, the show was like, okay, well, and then after you come out, we can, you know, tailor your outfit a little bit more. Vico was like, no, 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 keep my outfit exactly as it is. I'm just going to drop that, the beard and nose. That was so important to me. Yeah. Um, Talk to me. Like, yeah. like as a pre coming out, like, you know, as like a kid, as like an eight year old, nine year old, was really into like historical stories of women who passed as men to like serve in armies or mm-hmm. go on adventures. And I feel like whenever before this, whenever you see an on-screen representation of this, after they're outed, they show up in like a gown or whatever, you know, yep. like bullshit like, reveal. You can see their boobies now. Yeah. And like it's so gratifying to be like this person is the same person. They act the same. They look the same. They just don't have this goofy beard and giant nose. Um, and I don't know. It just warms the cockles of my cold, bitter trans heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 And even the whole scene where like um, Lucian finds out that Jim is wearing a beard and a nose um, is not sexualized in a way that. And I mean, Lucius is the person who you'd want to have that be because Lucius like gets it. But the show itself, from the eye and the perspective of the show, isn't objectifying or being salacious about this at all. It's just a device. Sorry, go go ahead. Yeah. So I was I I was thinking about um, first of all, one of my favorite parts of the show is when um, they meet Jim's nana, and (laughs) and and and. Jim's Nana greets them with their old name and Jim's just like, I go by Jim now. And Nana's like, okay, Jim. And Nana is immediately using the correct pronouns. Nana is calling Jim, Jim, except for a couple times. Um, And it's just like, it's really so gratifying. And I feel like so often when television or media of any kind tries to do these intergenerational stories, there's at least a moment of awkwardness. There's a little, you know, there's always some, okay, um, you know, you you just changed everything about who you are and now I don't know you, even though we all know that that's not really true. Um, it's where media likes to go. So in the show that's taking place in 1700s, right? Nana's just totally cool with Jim being Jim and it's awesome. But... I also wanted to mention, like, one of the things that I find interesting about including a character like Jim is that um, I'm sure both of you know um, about Anne Bonny and Anne Bonny's partner, who is sometimes called Mary Reed and sometimes called Mark Reed, um, because 
really the more that we learn about Reed, uh, the more it seems that they were not actually a woman in men's clothing, that they were some sort of transmasculine. Um, Hmm. And so having a character who is a non-binary character who um, is sort of, you know, is sort of taking up the same kind of space that Mary slash Mark Reed would have taken um, is it's nice to see and it's nice to acknowledge that this was a real thing. And there were really people living at that time whose conceptualization of their own gender was not cis and was not binary, even though they wouldn't necessarily have had those words to describe it. Yeah. There's so much freaking arguments over, are we applying contemporary uh, anachronistic to identities and we should be assuming that actually all of these people who were dressing up to pass as men were just doing it because they wanted to be able to do X, Y, Z. It's like, shut up, actually. No. Well, (laughs) and I I think the contrast between Anne Bonny, who was absolutely a woman who was wearing men's clothing, and Mary or Mark Reed, um, who had worn men's clothing for a very, very long time and not just um, as part of an attempt to get on a ship, um, you know, it's important to notice that those are two completely different identities. Um, And just because they have the same, just because they have the same anatomy doesn't necessarily mean that their relationship to their gender and their relationship to the way they're presenting their gender is the same. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it Uh is interesting that going back to like childhood fascinations, this just continues to be like one of the ways in which like, like cis heteronormative propaganda is just baked into so much Mm -hmm. um, of the content that like all of us have been consuming for so long and how it is clear how gender and ideology go together in such a like intense and inextricable way. I don't know. I'm I'm mad at all of these previous representations that little me had to consume in the absence yeah. of like actually like nuanced and good things, you know? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Any other gym feels or I'm sure we'll come back to more if the other the other gym feel that I love that I had very strongly is that Oluwande is like in love with them no matter what. Oh yeah. yeah. They're just like whatever. They're so <laughs> cute. <laughs> They're such a cute couple and Oluwande is so like just I, I think one of the things I like about that couple too is that it's yay for queer transmasculine representation that just because your gender presentation is masculine doesn't mean that you can't also be into men or other masculine presenting people. Um, Mm -hmm. which is another major failing of like a lot of pop culture representations of trans people and also just the tenderness that Oluwande has towards Jim. It's just such a good, I don't know. It's, it's such a cute relationship. I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah. I'm so glad we're going to have more with them because I would lose my mind if we didn't. Yeah. I feel like all of the relationships on that show are really cute. Lucius and Black P are adorable. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, Steed and Ed are 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 just. There's that part where when um, it's there's that part when they get captured, and and Ed has just come back to the ship, 
and they're lying there on the on the deck and Ed just like slides his foot over so it's tapping Steed's foot and it's the cutest thing. Yeah, that's really emotional. The whole like you came back, I never left. Yeah. This show better get renewed because I can't live life oh my without God. knowing what will happen. I mean, actually I can a- tell you what really happened in historical yeah, Time, but we've di- but- <laughs> we've, we've we've diversed enough from that. But it's yeah. true. There's interesting interesting splits that happen in that. Oh, I was going to say that there is actually a fan organizing campaign happening to send postcards to HBO demanding the renewal. I'll link to that in the show notes. Alawande is such a good dude, and like you know him He's and so sweet. him and Jim talking to steed about you know we don't do this because it's fun we we have this is like all the this is the option that we have in life to Mm -hmm. pirates and killing someone kills up also kills a part of yourself in some in some ways they're steed's mentors yeah yeah totally and the way the like level of care that oluwande has for steed also and is trying to keep him out of actual danger he's very concerned and i i (laughs) concerned. like he's he's i feel like oh. in some ways like i as an audience person i feel like i most identify with oluwande in that way i'm just mm. like oh steve what are you doing but what did you think of that whole scene with them and the the indigenous folks on the island where they're like you don't have to stay and die with these people he's like yeah but i kind of do it's yeah. complicated um yeah i mean so That's, again, that's another one of those moments on the show that is more historically accurate than you would expect from a show like this. Because historically, indigenous people in the area and also there were a lot of um, there were a lot of colonies of people who had been enslaved who'd escaped. And they were very understanding of sort of the tribulations of other people of color who um, may have fallen in with pirates because, for example, it's the only option they have. A lot of Black um, pirates were technically, if not actually, you know, they were technically enslaved by the captain. They, you know, they weren't always treated as if they were enslaved, but a lot of them didn't have a choice. And... It's so when you think about those sorts of things in that context, you know, it's pretty like I really appreciated the fact that like they actually went there and showed that happening because that really was a thing that happened. Um, I also, you know, Steve Little, I'm not a colonizer. He was such a colonizer. Like if there oh, was yeah. any if there was any pirate of that era who was a colon- colonizer, it was him. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe I would maybe put Ben Hornigold in that category, but like Steed Bonnet was absolutely it's like you have a plantation, dude. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it's interesting because we definitely got questions from listeners about pirates and the relationship with enslaved people. And I think it's really easy to sort of see this sort of idealized situation where you have because there were lots of pirates that were people who had been enslaved and who escaped and became pirates which is you're like oh my god what an amazing badass story but it's not always that you know yeah there were also but it is sometimes that (laughs) there were also pirates who were 
bought by their captains, which is um, Black Caesar, who is one of the most famous Black pirates of the era, actually Mm -hmm. sailed under Blackbeard and was effectively raised by Blackbeard after Blackbeard bought him. So, you know, that, that you're talking about all kinds of complicated relationships. Um, a lot of the time, one of the really interesting things um, about pirates and their interaction with um, the slave trade is that um, slave ships were actually the best um, type of ship for pirates to use. Um, so there, was a, there were a lot of pirates out there catch, capturing slave ships. Not because they necessarily were abolitionists, but because they just wanted the slave ship as their ship because there was lots of room for shit. So what ended up happening, though, was in some cases, pirates would free everybody. In some cases, they would ask if anybody wanted to join their crew. In some cases, they would literally just take those poor people to the slave market and they would just continue to be enslaved. Blackbeard is actually on the record as having done that at least once. And, um, you know, so it's this very, very complicated history. And it has a lot of um, a lot of moving pieces where there were points at which pirates were very much helping enslaved people, but not necessarily because they had the best motivations. And sometimes pirates were absolutely complicit in the slave trade. I feel like the way the show has handled race has been interesting because you see racism happening from characters with power, um, but, but it's also not like the story where this is the only thing that is happening in the lives of the diverse cast. It's not like every single moment is like white people saying racist shit to black people. Um, and certainly like having a cast that is, you know, maybe predominantly people of color is consistent with the reality of like life in the Caribbean at that time. But um, sort of seeing how the show sort of like, you know, addresses the people using racism against itself like they, when they invent when they invent the pyramid scheme oh god example, i love that episode it's so amazing much. i mean it isn't actually a period it's pyramid scheme it's actually the prince scheme but it is yeah. about pyramid so it is the pyramid scheme is is, <laughs> ge- is just genius um yep. and it's somebody being racist against frenchie that like starts the fight when the british naval officers are in the are on the ship in the first episode mm-hmm. i'm not a person of color but a, as a queer person i've i've really liked the way the show handles homophobia with a lot of shows that take place in the past there's they sort of handle queerness in three different ways either they completely ignore that it act and act like queerness only exists now which is of course bullshit uh or it takes place in an idealized world where there's no homophobia at all. Um, and that kind of escapism can be wonderful. Sometimes that's exactly what I need. Especially like, you know, when I'm playing D&D or another RPG game, I always tell my DM, like, my character's queer and there is no queer and there's no queerphobia in this world because that's just not fun for me. Or um, the other way that they'll handle queerness in stories based in the past is homophobia will be so oppressive that every interaction that a queer person has is terrible and miserable because the only thing that they that they deal with in their life is homophobia and everybody hates them and they're completely isolated. Mm-hmm. I really like how in this show, 
homophobia exists, but it is not so oppressive that we can't see beyond it. Mm. And in that way, for me as a viewer, it felt a lot more relatable because I too live in a world that is full of homophobia, but it's like, like we still exist. One of the things that really works with the show is having homophobia function the way it does because it's like, yes, everybody in the world of the show knows queer people exist and everybody in the show is constrained by heteropatriarchy. It's a problem that is oppressive, but it's not so hegemonic that people can't see ways around it. I think that the story strikes the balance between homophobia and queer people living their lives and loving each other and people finding themselves. It has a good balance in it that actually makes it more relatable. But if the story was in an idealized space, I think the story would be less rich than it is for having having that be a piece of the story, but not be the whole story. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's important for people to realize and understand that there are aspects of anti-queerness that are entirely modern, right? Homophobia was very much something that was developed in the Enlightenment. Uh, now, and but even during this, which is, you know, a story taking place um, during the time period, like it's not like queer people didn't exist or that all queer people were constantly about to get their heads bashed in at all times. Like queerness exists in history. Pirate, the history of pirates ha is full of queer stories. You know, married her jaw doesn't like hit the floor when he comes out to her. H heteropatriarchy is why Steed is married to a woman he never met before, right? But Mary, she's not like, oh my God, you're going to hell. It's very much like the world as it is now, where we live in a heteropatriarchy and homophobia is the dominant structure of society, but lots of people are still queer and lots of people are pro-queer. And it makes the story more relatable in a way that it wouldn't be if they were living in either an idealized space or everything is terrible. And it's really nice to have in this show a situation where it's sort of presented like queer, queer people exist and heteropatriarchy is the, is a problem. It is d the dominant way society is organized, but it's not so hegemonic that people can't see their way past it or around it. Even when you have somebody like Izzy Hands, who I think it would be very easy to interpret his hostility uh, towards Steed as anti-queer, it's really not. It's actually sexist, um, at least in my reading. He's not registering a complaint about who's fucking who. He's registering a, a complaint about people doing masculinity wrong. Yeah. He's also jealous. Oh, he's wicked jealous. He's so jealous. <laughs> um, I, love the, I love the fan art that shows uh, him like mooning over... Uh, Blackbeard yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So that's another place where one of the another period little period nuance thing at the time the sort of the sort of thing that we would today consider the stereotype of like an effeminate gay man um that was not read in the same way. That was read as a mockery of the Spanish. The way that gay men flagged at the time um, was by being very, very hyper-masculine. So when you look at, um, you look at Ed, he is absolutely presenting as a queer character, not just within our time, but within his own time. The more 
what we would call quote unquote masculine presentation a man had, the more likely he was to be gay. It's important for viewers to have that context. In yeah, that's really interesting. Because I just think if you assume that everybody who's mean to your favorite queer couple is is because they're anti-queer, then I feel like you're missing a piece of the story here. At least like very much my my reading is that like he is he is also has a very constipated sense of like what it means to be a man and like mm-hmm. what the role that violence plays and that that's, you know, the source of a lot of his hostility and resentment. And of course, the the interest that um, Ed has in Steed is that he's like, oh, there's other ways you can be. These ways have never been available to me till now. And I am interested in exploring those things. Well, I mean, this also to me gets to, I think, actually what the sh- show is also about on a deep level is masculinity, right? The whole thing is just it like such a really like surprisingly nuanced exploration of masculinity. It's done in such a disarming way. Um, I, I really can't think of another like piece of media that does it quite like this. And I think that's like why I love it so much. I mean, I think one of the things that's very effective about, uh, especially I think showing the, the rest of the world through flashbacks at Steed's sort of origin story is being able to see the badminton brothers and like what jerks they were to him as young men. Um, that is like, it's never explicitly homophobic, but it, it's heavily implied it is. that it is yeah. right. Like, yeah. Yeah. um, and the way that his, his father treats him and all that, that like a lot of that is core to like why he wanted to become a pirate and why he doesn't feel like he belongs in the sort of like uh, button down, like straight world, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that that was why there's a lot of queer pirates in real life. Yep. I, I mean, I think part of the reason there were a lot of queer pirates is also just the fact that um, women weren't allowed at sea um, in most <laughs> cases. So, you know, if you were, uh, you know, if you were a, a gentleman on a ship, uh, your your choices were kind of limited and you might, you might, feel a little bit more open to to uh, you know relationships that you wouldn't have considered otherwise but yeah i think um you know it, it's sort of like a you know like a green world kind of metaphor where you've got you've got the colonies and then you've got the sea and if the sea on the sea you can be who you want to be and then you know in barbados you've got to you've got to perform this certain thing. And then we see like the rich people's party, you've got to perform the certain thing. Um, but there's also this place where, you know, it's kind of a, um, you know, there's a lot of like inversion um, in like the sense of inversion festivals about it um, where like now you're at sea and, and you know, anything goes and you can, you know, put, you can put fuses in your beard and, Make your face look like smoke and you can, you know, have a have a library at sea. And it's just kind of this place where everybody can be who they want. Or you can be Spanish Jackie and have 18 husbands. You can be Spanish Jackie and have 18 husbands. Uh, We haven't talked about Spanish Jackie. Um, Love Spanish Jackie. Yeah. So the funny thing about the whole Spanish Jackie having 18 husbands is that Blackbeard was rumored to have 14 wives. But... (laughs) In Blackbeard's case, 
The reason he had so many wives was also rumored to be because he wasn't actually attracted to women. Nice. Um, and he just kept not fight. He kept thinking he would find one that he would be attracted to, and it just never panned out. <laughs> wow. But yeah, Spanish Jackie was real, and um, that was an amazing performance, and I love her. Oh, she's so good. We were talking a lot in our conversation around Peacemaker, about that show as a meditation on masculinity, and also tons of queer stuff. This show is so much more explicitly queer in the characterizations that we have. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I guess, I'm, do you have any thoughts about pulling apart yeah. those differences? I mean, I, I think that what I felt like we got with Peacemaker was a little bit more of a linear spectrum, whereas this is complex manifold of masculinities, where the way that people's masculinity, each character's expression of masculinity overlaps, touches each other in different interesting ways. And it's not necessarily this tension between two poles, but rather here's a bunch of people like trying to figure out what they want their lives to be like and how they want to live that I think is like really, one, it's relatable. <laughs> and also I think it, you know, you have like a large, like a, a large enough cast um, that you have space to explore like a lot more nuance. Um, mm. and give your audience not just sort of like here are the things that are intention, but like what happens when these different kinds of masculinities come together and maybe like create friction. Yeah, yeah. And like there's, you know, you have from original crew uh, working for Blackbeard, like Fang, who's like totally ready to get hit on by. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah by by lucius because everybody is completely ready to be hit on by lucius because yeah. like, lucian <laughs> is like good like that um and you know like yeah like you have all different you have all, all different kinds of expressions there i think that's really key uh we have not spoken as much about blackbeard himself as you would assume we might have on a show such as this because there are so many amazing characters in the show that we all love but we should definitely talk about blackbeard um i mean just the way the show builds up to the reveal of taika playing him sort of being off camera in those ways is really and like really making sure that everybody in the audience has to know like yes this is a big deal this person um and you know i imagine even for everyone this is still a household name is really excellent and i just I love the idea of, you know, Blackbeard is having a midlife crisis of ennui. The people around him sort of refuse to let him express the fact that he is having a crisis. I mean, it's interesting. When I rewatched the first couple episodes of the show before we recorded, and like you do see from the start, Izzy is like, oh yeah, the captain is like half lost his mind. And he's saying that before he even meets Steve. So like it's known mm -hmm. by everybody that this guy is on his last limb. And, you know, because being Blackbeard is exhausting and there's no retirement for workers, right? Um, I mean, I could get completely derailed talking oh, yeah. again about the the question of what is a vacation and what is retirement and explaining these concepts. Sorry, T, go ahead. No, I was just agreeing with your, uh, with your no retirement for workers comment. I think what's interesting about this portrayal of Blackbeard is that He's absolutely a character who's been performing another character for a very long time. Um, and 
is trying to sort of sort out which parts of him are the character, which parts of them are his himself. He talks about being bored of being Blackbeard and that's very, you know, it very much feels like, you know, somebody who is so good at one thing that they're constantly expected to do that one thing over and over and over again until there's no end in sight. And you really feel the pathos of that character. Mm, yeah, that's really, that's really, that's really true. I love how the story really sells that like Blackbeard isn't just about violence. Blackbeard is artistry. And that was true historically. Um, Blackbeard was actually known for not killing captives. Um, it was one of the reasons that he was such a successful pirate because basically <laughs> yeah. his strategy was if everybody knows that I'm not going to kill them, then they're not going to fight as hard. So that actually worked. And the theatrics, the artistry, the whole, he is faces smoking. He really did um, put fuses in his beard to make it look like his face was a ball of smoke. Like those are all real things that Blackbeard did. He was all about theatrics. Um, but he also was, um, you know, by all accounts, by all accounts, a much more chill person than the persona of Blackbeard um, that kind of became the fictionalized version of himself. I mean, I, the, just the casting of Taika Waititi as Blackbeard, I just think that by itself, I was like sold. You know, that was like one of the things that I was like, I'm in for this just because I think that like, I don't know. He's basically everything he touches is I love. It's mm -hmm. um, been the yeah. case for a while. And and I also think that there's something about um, there's something about him also being a man of color yeah. um, that I think is like. I don't I don't really I haven't like thought too deeply about this, so I'm just kind of like uh, going to go there off the cuff. I think that there's something really important about one of the main characters in a show like this. We've already talked about like how the ensemble is really strong. It is meaningfully diverse. It would be weird to have two of the sort of the like main characters who are in this kind of like leading romance be both to both white men. I think that would mm. be weird given this show. He has the range also in terms of being like having a the ability to hold the drama and also nuance and also that like he hits the comedy beats exactly right. Yeah. His performance is so good. He's able to do all the physical comedy and the fighting and uh, the love scenes and just play everything so well. You would not have the show without him. It just wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. I definitely am interested in, and I have not found, but I'm interested in seeing more folks, more thoughts from um, folks who are Maori uh, talking about like specifically um, having a Maori actor inhabiting this particular role. Cause I think that there's, there's something interesting in that, in those particulars as well. If someone sees something you like, point it to me, please. I'm trying to, not think too hard about potentially bad fan takes about like it being bad to have this to have a person of color in this role because this is actually a white person who did xyz that was bad basically the hamilton argument i don't want to have a fucking hamilton argument about it is what i'm trying to say <laughs> yeah I, not. 
I don't think helpful. you need to have a Hamilton argument. I think I think there's like the part of it that's important to recognize. Again, important to recognize that Blackbeard, the fictional character in the show, is not actually historical Blackbeard, but is taking pieces of historical Blackbeard. But I think it's also important to know that we don't really know where Blackbeard was actually from. He kind of showed up as an adult in 1716 hmm. and... Um, you know, while it's speculated that he's from England, at the same time, a lot of this stuff was made up after the fact and could totally have been English people trying to claim him. So, you know, it's a character where it's not it, it's not completely out of left field that he may not be English. Mm-hmm. Love to hear it. Thank you. We should talk about fashion and flags and the way the show really understands the importance of aesthetics and how we express ourselves. I love that they open by having a flag contest and which they're <laughs> supposed to select one flag as the winner, except all the flags are chosen because all of the flags are valid. Yeah. All the flags are valid. Uh, the running ga- gag with the cat flag, though. <laughs> the cat flag is so freaking cute. I love cat flag. <laughs> oh, I would fly cat flag. I know. I feel like that should be if if this is a pirate ship, that is probably our flag's cat flag. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frenchie is an artist. Like he plays yeah. instruments. Yeah. He can't write, but he's drawing anyway as like he's making comics of the story that they're living. Mm-hmm. Like he he's he's an improv actor, you know, like <laughs> he's doing the pirate scheme. Like Fren- Frenchie really is the artist. That performance from him is so fucking good. It just is Joel Fry, like the fact that people expect that people like, you know, Joel Fry from uh, Game of Thrones is like, no, no, Joel Fry from from everything except for Game of Thrones. That didn't (laughs) count. This is the real deal. He's so fucking good. Anyway, let's talk about like how important the conversation is around Steed's wardrobe. Like Steed is doing pirate drag. Like that's his. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does Steed want to pirate because he wants the outfits and the ships? Is that like, is that it? I mean, that I, I feel like that's kind of what's implied by him, like, you know, in the flashbacks with Mary coming up with the model ship, being like, he's so taken by the aesthetics of the object, right? Yeah. That, like, it is about, it, it, like, I mean, it's sort of like the ship is a fetish object almost, right? Like, yeah. he's, uh, like, in an art history way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, part of it, too, with Steed is that he is, um... He's not somebody who can really do a life of conformity. And Mm. so he's definitely, I think, attached to kind of the romanticism of of piracy and the idea of like being, you know, brave adventurers out on the open waves um, who, you know, don't follow, you know, don't follow rules. And uh, so he kind of it's sort of his escape. I mean, it literally is his escape. I shouldn't be saying sort of. From that life, I think, you know, the clothes and I, I, one of the things I love, love, love is beyond just the scene where Steed and Ed trade clothes. The fact that after Steed leaves, Ed is walking around in Steed's Steed's dressing gown, that like (laughs) big pink floaty one. And it's so great because you you start with Blackbeard being this character who is 
so focused on presentation and looking a certain way and looking a way that invokes fear and means some a specific thing to people. And it's, you know, all about semiotics. And mm-hmm. then sort of does this shift in the way he feels about those semiotics. I mean, even to the point of, you know, the whole no no beard. It's interesting to see him sort of pick those things up and move further away from that as the show progresses. Yeah, mm. the, the episode where they go to the dinner party on the other boat. Oh, yeah. As a sort of like inflection point for that. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff the accountant. <laughs> Jeff the accountant. <laughs> but also like how like putting ribbons in his beard and like, you know, really oh, he sort did of like that. going for it, going no. for it. Mm-hmm. So so historical Blackbeard wore colorful ribbons in his beard all the freaking time. So <laughs> like that was that is absolutely like a thing that somebody knew and took out of historical documentation and threw into this show because it's delightful. It's so good. I think one of my favorite things about the episode two is that his like discovery of like different ways of managing conflict and like using uh passive aggression. Massive aggression. Yeah. <laughs> Massive aggression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but just like different different ways of winning is also really mm-hmm. interesting. That it's like mm-hmm. it's not yes. just about like the aesthetics, but it's also like there are other ways of engaging in, in conflict and, and combat really that like are available, which I again I think goes back to this thing about uh, in the beginning of Blackbeard being so tired, he's like, "Oh, there are other approaches, oh. right? Like, I can still, I can still be in charge, but in different ways, right?" Yeah, I, I think the other, the other thing with the dinner party is that, like, it's absolutely so romantic that Steed completely shames the hell out of all of those horrible people because because they made fun of Ed because he didn't remember which fork to use. And mm-hmm. he just like lights it on goes fire. For it. Oh yeah, <laughs> That's oh amazing. yeah, it's amazing, and it's incredibly romantic and incredibly silly, and you know, and it's just oh, it's so great. That whole dinner scene is just that whole scene. It just has so much to say about race and class. Like yes, oh yeah. I mean, it's not a coincidence. She's like, are you a phrenologist? Like, specifically, yes. that being a, a racist pseudoscience. A eugenics thing. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like I remember what when we were watching that episode that I just had a moment of, I could feel just, like, holding my breath for a second to be like, how are they going to handle this? Oh, yeah. Um, just because it is, uh, it is so fraught. And it's, you know how there are people who... I mean, foolish people who are like, well, if you can't joke about X, Y, or Z, like if the woke police are going to come for me, then you can't joke about X, Y, or Z thing. And it's like, no, no, you can still joke about it, but like make a smart joke about it and Mm -hmm. or like make fun of the thing, like use comedy to make fun of the thing and show us why it's messed up. And I think that like, you know, going in that direction, obviously was necessary. And I was like, so relieved to see that. And I think that, like, that is the episode that, to me, really, like, says the most about 
the fact that we're dealing with the British Empire, right? Mm. Like, the -hmm. fact that some of the serving people on the ship are also ostensibly of Indian descent as well. Um, Like, Asian Indian. Yeah. um, Right? Who, like, help with the pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That there's just layers there of talking about how race is was like used to construct colonial settler colonial capitalism that i think is subtle it doesn't hit you over the head but if you know you know yeah that's a great way to describe it and i think but i think it's also present enough that people are going to see this isn't just this isn't just a joke this is about something nick kroll and kristen Schaal are so wonderful in that scene just wonderfully evil and terrible (laughs) so perfect you know, and it's it's also I think the the comment about class, um, it, it's the the fact that they're all so taken with Jeff the accountant until Jeff the accountant doesn't know how to eat a specific food, and then all of a sudden they just like all they want to do is shame the heck out of him, and it's so it, like it I it's so sad, you know, but it's also very 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 real. Um, If you've ever been in a situation with people who are where you're surrounded by people who are much wealthier than you are. It's like, oh, this is an exciting, exotic outsider. And as soon as the exotic outsider Uh that's entertaining Mm -hmm. is wrong in just one little way, then it's like, oh, no, time to show you that we're superior. Because Um, we know which fork to use. Yeah. (laughs) It's a it's it is a very also a very relatable feel. What do folks think about the whole uh, relationship with Ed being the Kraken and now he's the Kraken and he's got he's got his uh, beard makeup and under eye bags of suffering on being the monster? I just feel really bad for him. Yeah. Like he's going through some stuff and he was so in love and then Steed left him and he doesn't know what happened. Like, the, you know, I feel like the fact that he doesn't know that that Steed accidentally was present and may have contributed to the death of yet another badminton. Hmm. He doesn't know what happened. He just thinks that, like, he was in love and he, like, laid bare his heart to this guy and he disappeared. And really, Steed is just trying to figure some stuff out because now he feels like he killed two people. And it's, you know, it's just really heartbreaking and it's that whole whole thing where when you're cast in a certain way when you're a child, um, you know, people have a certain expectation of you that isn't necessarily a positive one. And then you grow up and most of the time you're okay. And most of the time you feel like you've grown past that. But then every once in a while something will happen and it'll be like, oh, no, I really am the Kraken. You know, mm, and it feels yeah. like it feels like that's what's happened to him is that he's like, oh, I really am unlovable and terrible. And I'm just going to like lean way into it instead of talking things out. I, f- yeah. I feel like the show's preoccupation with both Steed's and Blackbeard childhood trauma is also like extremely queer. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah. one, obviously, uh, Childhood trauma is such a, like a, it's like one of those things that like, as I get older, I'm like, oh shit, like there's something here. This is a real thing. Um, 
And also I feel like, well, obviously Steve's childhood trauma is heavily implied that it is also about his, like, even as a, like, being one of those kids that everybody thought was queer, you know? Mm -hmm. The thing about uh, Blackbeard's childhood trauma is that it is about, like, abandonment by a male caregiver. I mean, it's not just abandoned, obviously. It's, like, a lot more gruesome than that. Um, But ultimately, at its core, it's an abandonment, which I feel like is also kind of a trope in, like, queer coming-of-age storytelling. It's more than just the abandonment because there's also the whole you know him you know that like presumably that's the first time he killed anybody and it's sort of like the catalyzing incident in his life that led him to where he is now how do you experience something like that and how do you deal with a situation where you have to kill somebody who is supposed to care for you because they're abusive yeah and now struggle with defining yourself by that or coming up with a new definition for yourself yeah i i I loved that we got those moments from his home life and the connection with the red fabric when he threw the silk into the ocean that was another so so destroyed i'm like like your connection to your mom ah um killed me oh god which brings me to this will be a moment of yes ilana do go off but um it's not a coincidence that Lucian is the one that Lucius, sorry, that Lucius is the one that gets thrown overboard by uh, by Ed. Lucius is the one who has seen Ed be his most vulnerable. He has seen Ed be like weak from sadness and abandonment. He Lu- Lucian had given Ed love advice, right? Like when it was still in the will they won't they phase of the uh steed and ed flirtation like lucian is like i'm pulling you aside to say you're going to die alone if you don't let this toxic masculinity go he's the person from that whole crew that like knows the ways that ed is quote unquote weak and therefore to cut himself off from that that's he gets literally and figuratively tossed overboard even though he because he's the one who's done so much to help him um i'm so that you know part of me is like he's absolutely dead and gone now at least he got to have some amazing scenes before he died but now i'm like no people just keep ending up in little boats and washing ashore i'm not sure that he's dead <laughs> okay yeah i but, refuse um, to believe that lucius is dead lucius is the fucking best um but you know i i, I just really i think it's not a coincidence that well, he's also the only he, one who can read and write yeah he's, the, so other he's the only one who can document anything one of the things, so yeah, I'm pretty convinced that Lucius is alive. Um, I would be very sad if he wasn't. I'd be very sad for Black Pete if he wasn't. Um, I know. But I'm also like, I was actually expecting over the course of the show, and I'm definitely expecting if there's another season, I'm totally expecting the piece of red silk to be a brick joke. What's so, a brick like, joke? Oh, a brick joke is when you tell somebody it's it's a crazy it's actually a crazy cat reference but um it's ah, become its of own thing and of its own where you tell a joke where somebody throws a brick and then you just keep doing something else and then you tell another joke where somebody gets hit by a brick like an hour later mm. and it's the brick from ah, the first yes. joke and so <laughs> like i'm expecting i'm i was totally expecting like the piece of red cloth to like 
blow in the wind into Steed's face or something. Um, and it didn't, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't still happen. That's true. <laughs> I love Lucia's connection to Jim, him saying like, not all beards are actual beards when <laughs> Jim, when, when he's the one who finds Jim. I love that like, you know, like, it's, you know, he's, he's a hundred percent. Like, I don't, I'm not into women. Like that's a joke he makes about like how he hid from his mom. He's like, you know, I, she thought I was heterosexual. And when, and when Jim kisses him, he's like, Oh, maybe I like Jim, which is like, yes, that's right. Cause, because Jim is not a woman. Jim is non-binary so that you can go, go with God. But I love his relationship with, with Black Pete, of course. But I, I also just feel like this is the character who, you know, he can read and write. So there's something in the backstory, like, I just have to, I really want to know Lucia's, I have all kinds of thoughts about what Lucia's backstory might be. And um, it's definitely going to be an interesting one. Yes. I have lots Lucia. of thoughts about Lucia's, what Lucia's, back, Lucia's backstory might be as being someone who, you know, is literate, is queer, is, um, you know, has decided that he's going to be hot. Which is like the other thing I was you like, know? yes, that, that's, I'm like, oh my God, that's my that thing too. He's like, is so you, good. you think you're cute? He's like, no, I think I'm so, so actually, I've just decided to carry myself like I'm hot. It's just like the best fucking thing. Yes. And also like works people, like you should know that. <laughs> I, I just wanted to add that he's also very good at drawing penises. Oh yeah, definitely. That's um, true. <laughs> The the other thing that I will point out about Lucius and the fact that he has to go overboard is he is the only character who consistently acts like he's in a rom-com. Mm. Um, like, <laughs> I feel like he is kind of the, you know, I, he as a sort of counterpoint to Izzy Hands who acts like he's in a, like, gritty period drama. Um, <laughs> yes. Like, they are, they are the, yeah. they're two opposite poles. And so getting, like, this is the other reason why I don't think Lucius is dead. Because he needs to exist as a sort of like, you know, he's like an energetic, uh, like anchor for like the rom com of it all. Mm. He's got to kill his hands and bring back the rom com. Exactly. I need to talk about Con O'Neill, who's the actor who plays Izzy Hands now for a moment. Um, okay. As I mentioned earlier, this show is full of really interesting voices. I love that. I should say, beyond, yes. like, I love that everybody is just doing their natural accent, including. The New Zealanders, who I'm pretty sure, like that accent, literally did not exist at that time in history, and I'm 100 yeah. percent fine with them just having it anyway. Um, uh, but anyway, Con O'Neill, I I loved his strange voice that sounds like he just had a vocal cord explode, and that he's like probably has some active emphysema happening. I went and I looked him up. And the first thing in his bio is like he's mostly known for his work in musical theater. Now I am not a huge expert on contemporary musical theater, although the current production of Company on Broadway with Patti Lapone is amazing, and they still have a mask mandate, so go see it now. Um, but I was like, that voice—you can have that voice and be in Hair or a rock musical, but like that's not standard musical voice. So I went and I looked up some of his earlier singing appearances. That is not what he sounded like when he was younger. I, I have not gone to like look up interviews to be like, so dude, what happened? But that man's voice has experienced some sort of trauma. And I think it's really interesting that like 
I've listened, so I've listened to him sing in a beautiful angelic tenor, like literally, like no joke, beautiful angelic tenor in his Broadway role in Bl- Blood Brothers, for which he was nominated. Yes. No, not not nominated. He won the Laurence Olivier Award for Best Actor in a Musical. Um, but like, this is an actor who's like seen some changes. Let me say, I'm and I'm very fascinated by like that whole aspect of him. His Twitter account is also like 90% yelling at the Tories and like 10% supporting is <laughs> 10% supporting Izzy Han's fan art. I'm like, oh, oh that's so cute. It's great. He like loves love the that. fan art and hates the Tories. I'm like, good on you. Um, but yeah, that was really fascinating. <laughs> I was just it. like, the, what did anybody else say? Oh, yes, clearly this man's background is from musical theater because um that was Never surprising guessed. and awesome. Would not have guessed. But yeah, that voice is just like it 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 carries such tension in it. That it yes. like hurts. It hurts. Um, and it's also, but it's not that it's different than he sounds like normally, but it's not super different. He's not putting on a voice. Like I need it. That's the, that's the thing I need to know. Is he putting on a voice? It's like, that is definitely acting. But if you do listen to him talk, like he was in like a, in like a action thriller, um, recently I saw the trailer of it and he sounds similar to how he does on the show, but not exactly. Interesting. I thought so too. Um, I actually should look up Matthew Mayer, Ma- Matthew Maher, um, who's Black Pete, and see um, because like he has you know he has a specific way of speaking as well that's that's uh, unusual and I think brings a like it brings something to the character. Um, Nat Faxon, who plays the Swede, is also uh, Elfo on Dis- Disenchantment, which I really love, uh, and I really love his moment of singing um, soprano for no apparent reason during during the fuckery. <laughs> Um, but anyway, <laughs> yes. I know that as soon as I mentioned, as soon as I was like de- de- debriefed to T <laughs> about like Con O'Neill's Broadway history, T unloaded something very on the opposite end of Izzy Hands Facts on me yeah. that I feel like now is the opportunity. To oh, hear do more I need about. to do I need to tell you all about Izzy Hands, the real the the real um, person? Yes. yes. Okay. So, I as far as I know, he was not actually called Izzy. So Israel Hands, um, he was 16 at the time that this would have been taking place. Um, (laughs) That's a rough 16. Yeah, he was 16 years old. So he has seen some shit for a 16-year-old, I gotta say. (laughs) Um, He was one of Blackbeard's closest confidants. That part is absolutely true. He's One of the things that's really interesting about him is that when Blackbeard was finally killed at Ocracoke, Israel Hands was one of the few people to survive. And the reason he survived was that a night or two before the battle, Blackbeard shot him in the knee, mm. um, claimed to have shot him, quote unquote, accidentally. But Israel Hands was taken out of commission. He was sent to a hospital on the mainland. They were near North Carolina at the time. Um, sent to a hospital on the mainland to recover. Then Blackbeard got killed, like, within days of that. And hmm. the folks who killed Blackbeard, Blackbeard was um, killed by a uh, guy named Maynard. They arrested all of the remaining people from Blackbeard's crew, one of whom was Black Caesar, one of whom was Israel Hands. I don't recall who some of the others were, but there weren't very many. Um, and really, they only allowed... Um, Israel Hands to live because he was so young. So one of the things that I freely fi- find interesting about the show is that he's the one who makes that comment about like how the only retirement is death. 
He's actually one of the very, very few pirates to have successfully retired Hmm. because Blackbeard very generously shot him in the knee and he wasn't able to fight. Do you think that maybe he like got Blackbeard caught like when he was in the hospital, he like spilled the beans or something? Oh, absolutely not. Blackbeard basically went on a suicide (laughs) mission. Like he was like, oh, yeah, he was like gunning for it. So before before he died, he stole Steed Bonnet's ship, abandoned Steed Bonnet's crew. I think he abandoned a bunch of other people too. There were a bunch of ships that got because because I feel like I feel like Charles Vane's ship got grounded around the same time. He basically went to Ocracoke, had a huge party with a bunch of his friends, including um, including Charles Vane and Jack Rackham. There is speculation that they had a threesome during that time. Um, there's a lot of speculation that Blackbeard and Charles Vane had an on and off thing. Um, but then, um, yeah, then Blackbeard like took a very, very limited number of his crew and charged into a battle that he was very ill prepared for. So maybe he shot Izzy in the knee because he wanted Izzy to not get caught with them. And that was the only way to get him off the ship. That's incredibly plausible. That's definitely a, um, that's definitely a uh, popular theory. Wow. Pirates in real life. So many feelings. I, um, I actually, I have one book recommendation from um, a friend of mine, uh, my podcast co-host for the for my deep space nine podcast, deep space dive, um, Sarah Daniel Rasher. Um, folks may know is a erstwhile Shakespeareologist, and I believe it was their uh, grad. Was it? Was it? One, it was one. Of, it was their. Yeah, their mentor. One, their mentor in one of the grad schools uh, was the author. Is the author was the author? I should say of Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash. Piracy, Which I sexu- read. Okay. Yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> Rum, Sodomy, and the Lash: Piracy, Sexuality, and Masculine Identity by Hans Turley. Love to it's hear a it. fantastic you- book. It's a really interesting book. That's the book that I learned the little bit that I said before about how really effeminate characterizations of men were actually mockery of the Spanish during the time from that book. Love it. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a any, really you, interesting yeah. perspective. Really interesting perspective on masculinity, changing definitions of masculinity in the Caribbean um, during that era. Uh, highly recommend. Even I was going to say, like, yeah, I recommendations. Was. Yeah, I was. So, um, I feel like a lot of the books that I have are outdated. I can I I can recommend pirate comics. Yes, we had a question from a listener. Yeah. Ooh, Tom Spielman wants to know what pirate comics do you recommend? Okay, so I'm going to start with um one that kind of plays off the Flying Gang, which is the group of pirates that Blackbeard and a bunch of these other folks were part of. More Flying Gang characters. There's a great graphic novel called Tell No Tales by Sam Maggs and Kendra Wells that focuses on Anne Bonny and Reed. It's delightful. It's very queer. It's very cute. Um, Woods Rogers is in it. Uh, It's I would definitely, definitely recommend that. Um, Another really great, you know, and I think at this point, classic pirate comic is the manga One Piece by Ichiro Oda. Oda, uh, it's it's got all kinds of all kinds of um, cameos of different famous real historical pirates or pirates who are based on pirates. 
Um, it's also got, it's also super queer. Um, there's, uh, Polly and the Pirates by Ted Nifo. I feel like that's maybe like 10 or 15 years old at this point. Super cute. Um, it's about a, it's about a little girl who goes on a pirate adventure. And then, um, there is a spinoff of Princeless called Raven the Pirate Princess by Love it. Uh, Higgins Love it so much. and Ted yeah. Brandt that is fantastic. And so I feel like a lot of the things I'm recommending are very much focused on female pirates. Oh, there's also Captain Kate, which is very, very hard to find. It's a 1968 comic um, about a female cat tra traitor captain. Um, during this particular era, um, it's by Jerry and Hale Skelly. So those are my pirate comic recommendations. And uh, but a lot of them are based are really focused on female pirates um, or in the case of Tell No Tales, female and non-binary pirates. That's awesome. I don't know, Kaden, if you have any recommended reading you want to offer as well. I don't think I do. That's okay. Um, I was going to say, like, the original questioner had said, you know, other than Terry and the Pirates. And, like, yeah, Terry and the Pirates really is one of the classic comic strips. Um, mm -hmm. Really beautiful but art. I will also highly, highly recommend Black Sails. Um, Black Sails is interesting because it's about as historical as Our Flag Means Death, um, except it takes itself very seriously, which is interesting because it it makes a lot of really interesting historical departures from what really happened, some of which are actually super hilarious if you know what actually happened. But it's also a show that effectively has the thesis that basically a show about how um, forced heteronormativity will kill you. And it's very much a consistent theme through the course of the show. Super queer show. Lots of pirates. Very good. Awesome. Um, it reminds me of one of our listener questions, which was like, was Israel Hands actually short and angry? If not, why not? I mean, I think based on the fact that he was a teenager, <laughs> based on the fact that he was a teenager, I think the answer is he probably was short and angry because yeah. he was a teenager. Teenager. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know that I don't know that much about what his personality was like. Um, but yeah, he was 16 years old. He was probably short and angry. Love yeah, it. I was certainly short and angry at 16, and I wasn't a pirate. Aww. Aww. Uh, I think we mentioned before the show, so we were all like pirate kids, although I certainly cannot quite match the level of uh, ship's knowledge <laughs> that, that T has maintained, you Long Islanders. Although I will say, uh, let, this being a, a Taika uh, production, um, the music and the music choices were amazing. Yes. Um, I think Our Prayer by the Beach Boys is one of the most stunning oh. pieces of music ever created. I say that also about other things by the Beach Boys quite often. But the, the, the deployment of that song in the scene where Steed is getting rescued by Blackbeard from the Spanish, basically. Yes. Uh, it's so beautiful. Apparently that was suggested by the, uh, the editor um, had put that out. But like, it's just, it's not just that it's angelic, but it's an angelic beach music. Felt like a great choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, using the chain. That was the one I was yes. going to mention. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. The, like, Fleetwood Mac, beautiful. It's uh, so, 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 so well executed. But the Cat Stevens thing was just, like, it'll kill you. Like, I mean, oh, of course. Yeah. 
I thought they did interesting, really interesting musical choices. Mark Mothersbaugh was the, I don't remember shit what his title was, but he worked on this, so I'm not surprised that yeah. the music was great. The other thing uh, to say about music is also um, Button naked in the moonlight playing his flute. Oh, mm. yeah. And and Carl the Seagull. <laughs> oh, and just like Carl. what a like what a like bizarre character Button is, but also like I think what's really sweet is like how seriously the whole crew takes him, even though he's like yeah, kind of a weird dude. Buttons is kind of one of the only people who seems to really know about the sea. Yes, and he yes. also has magic powers. I think Buttons is a druid. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> he, he talks to the seagulls. He communes with the seagulls. His yeah. intensity. I also love that um, Carl's death is the thing that finally, like, gets everybody to just, like, be done with Jack Rackham. Like, mm. <laughs> the guy, he's so terrible. He He's also, I'm going to repeat, nothing like historical Jack Rackham, and I'm very, very mad that he's off model. But, mm. like, the fact that the crew all takes it so seriously that, like, Carl's death is, like, just this unspeakable, horrible crime and unforgivable and then there's the really sweet scene with buttons and olivia and they're talking to each other and it's just like it's kind of like tear jerking olivia the other seagull the other seagull yeah oh i know and then they give her captions i mean because she's actually yes. speaking to him yeah it's beautiful um, let's go and make sure we're hitting up all the listener questions that we can have, that we have time for, of which there is not an unlimited time. Um, for, question for T or for anyone else if needed, <laughs> a pirate factoid that you wish this show or pirate media more broadly were incorporate. Um, what's a weird or important thing that gets missed? So in this show in particular, um, and I'm also upset that it's not in um it's not in black sales is um blackbeard was very very good friends with a howler monkey named jefferson who is three feet tall and (laughs) um and literally any any account of this friendship talks about it like a friendship like blackbeard blackbeard made friends with a monkey named jefferson and I really want somebody to explore that relationship because like the idea that like Blackbeard's like buddying along with this giant howler monkey and that he considers the howler monkey his friend is so great. And I really want to see people make more use of that in general in media. I realize that there may be some budgetary restrictions. Yeah. But yeah, maybe. But mm. Jefferson is so good. I'm sure they th- there there are things that they could do to like maybe take some liberties with it that would also be excellent in terms of animal friends. Yes. Yeah, but it's also one of those things where there's that point where they talk about how Blackbeard has a no pets rule. And it's like this man wouldn't have had a no pets rule. He had a three foot monkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's beyond a pet. That's a that's a life partner. It is a life partner. Oh, 
I wonder where he got the howler monkey from. I mean, um, from Ecuador, Port Royal, I mean, Ecuador. But um, what? Oh, okay. Yeah, Port Royal. He he met Jefferson in Port Royal. Oh, I hope he was well, the little furry man was okay. He probably wasn't. I don't know what happened to the little <sighs> furry man. Damn it. But I also, I do want to mention that I think that it would have really been interesting, um, you know, to have Caesar on Blackbeard's crew. Yeah, um, exactly. I think I that's... Think we'll, I think we'll get him. I pro I wouldn't... Yeah, I, I would have really liked to see that because it's an interesting, it's an interesting relationship. He's a really interesting guy in his own right. I, I think that given, sort of given the context of the show and the sorts of stories that they're trying to tell, uh, it would make a lot of sense for him to show up. Yeah. Definitely. Um, for me, I, 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 as much as I love the music in the show and I enjoy the songs that Frenchie makes up, I would love there to be more sea shanties. Pirate core. Like, but like also like, you know, like real, you know, sea shanties of the period. Um, I feel like it would be a fun thing to include and they have the vocal talent to do a good job with it. Um, so I hope we get some of that. Singing is really important in a society without recorded music, especially. If you guys can imagine like what life is like if you can't just listen to music. Everybody, you like now how people these days will be like, oh, I don't sing. Like that was not, unless you had like a religious prohibition from singing because you were from one of the religions that was against that, like you sang because that's how there was music. Um, and so and communal singing was a very, like that was part of life. So I'd like to see some definitely of that. a big ship thing. Yeah. Yeah. Kaden, do you have any uh, factoids or wishes for pirate media? I do feel like one of the things I want is like, I continue to want more gender not conforming pirates that like, you know, have a variety of uh, kind of ways of not like gender nonconformity. Um mm. You know, one of the things that I do think about with regards to Jim is there's this joke about uh, all gender neutral clothing being like a burlap sack. Um, <laughs> and, Literally there. Yeah. And so I would really like to see some gender non-conforming pirates who are themselves fabulous and be able to be masculine and flamboyant as well. Yeah, that would be really great. I mean, interacting with Jim might also help other characters understand or interpret their own gender identities in different ways. There is yeah. actually um, one of the stand-ins who worked on the show said that their conversations with Vico on the set blew their mind and helped them realize that they were also non-binary. Oh, that's so great. I'm so I happy to hear that. it. I know. I mean, I'm telling you, Vico Ortiz is a hero. I just, amazing. Yeah. Um, so that's the other thing, folks. Please make sure that you're following Vico on social media. Oh my gosh. Samba Shoot, the actor who plays Roach, and Vico Ortiz went to a Ren Fair in California on together Day. on Pirate Day. And um, Samba was like doing the kind of like a cute traditional pirate outfit. And Vico was literally dressed as Izzy Hands, except they had their hair yeah. back turquoise. Um, <laughs> they, they went to Pirate Day at the fucking Ren Fair. I, I love that. so seen. Oh, I, know. So I, I go to Pirate Day at the Run Fair. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I haven't been in so long because of COVID. I know. Uh, Very sad. Okay. 
And now um, they was, have so yeah. much, there's so much fan art of like Izzy hands dyeing his hair blue. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. There Love really it. is. I should say for folks, if you haven't looked at fan art for this, this is amazing. One of my favorite pieces, actually, this connects to something um, the, sh uh, the showrunner said, is the drawing of all of the characters as Muppets, except for Israel Hands, who is, you know, look, who's an actual person. That sounds And right. that was based on a comment somebody said, which was that I think this is a story where every character is a Muppet except Izzy because like he's the yes! one human in the cast of Muppets. And somebody and the, the showrunner was like, yes, that sounds accurate. And then there was a reply. I wish I could credit who said it that said when the show begins, Blackbeard is also an actor. But when Blackbeard trades costumes with Steed, he comes out as a Muppet as well. <laughs> oh, right so he begins with an actor yes. they switch costumes and then he's then he he's also a muppet i'm like yes oh, precious i want to thank you guys for joining me thank you for having us this was super yeah. fun it was really nice to meet you t this was so fun it was nice to yeah meet you, yeah someday a... we'll all be at FlameCon together oh yes. someday soon hopefully except now there's no mask mandate on on transit so we might Yikes. all be dead <laughs> we'll see uh so tell our listeners uh where can they find you and your work online t so you can find me pretty much on any social media at Teaberry Blue. That's tea like the drink, berry like the fruit, blue like the color. Um, you can also see what I do for work at comicskingdom.com. And see lots of amazing comic strips, like yeah. all of them, pretty much. Oh, thank you. And Caden, where can our listeners best find your work online? Uh, probably the best place to find me these days is just on Twitter. My handle is my first name, C-A-Y-D-E-N. I love it. You were the first one out the gate. <laughs> it's it's a heavy burden to bear, but it's mine. You are the Caden of Twitter. Well, I am on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A -A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Uh, Graphic Policy Radio will continue to be here with your comics news and reviews and interviews with creators and writers, as well as the Deep Space Dive podcast, wherein we talk about Deep Space Nine. We've got another episode coming up really soon. I'm excited to share with you. And as we'd like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs> <laughs>